Thank you for listening to sermons from Stonehouse Church. Our current series is called Seven Letters. Seven Letters is a sermon series looking at the letters of Jesus Christ to seven ancient churches. These letters fill the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation written by John, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. As we explore these seven letters, we will seek to discover what we as the church today can learn from Christ's words to the seven churches of Revelation. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 2 today, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Good morning. The rousing crowd said, Woo! Greetings. I'm Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse Church. Uh, We are glad to have you if you're regular with us. Um, Get your Bibles ready. We are digging into the book of Revelation. Uh, not with an S at the end of it, and uh, going to be there for seven weeks. Uh, it's going to be tremendously exciting. I'm, I'm crazy amped right now because of how fun the book of Revelation is, um, and so if that's a strange phrase to you, uh, welcome to Stonehouse Church. Uh, we really want to dig into Scripture and allow Scripture to press into us rather than us uh, read Scripture through our own lenses or through cultural lenses. Uh, and so we wrestle with the difficult things of Scripture. We let it kind of be authority over us. We like to say that we uh, like to hold Scripture over us rather than stand on top of Scripture. Um, and the reason we do this is because of a lot of what we're going to see in Revelation today uh, and over the next seven weeks is that the voice of our dear Savior Jesus is calling out to us from the passages of Scripture with love, with encouragement, with correction and rebuke, all to shape us into his image to the glory of God. Um, And so we want to do that on a regular basis and let Scripture uh, continue to pour out into our hearts and lives. And so uh, it's tough to do in this day and age. We admit that. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of doubts. There's a lot of fears. There's a lot of wrestlings that go on. Uh, And so if you're somebody who has those things, doubts and fears and wrestlings, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, uh, this is a great place to hang out because we want to press into all of those things without condemnation. 
Uh, we want to make sure we leave room for questions and skepticism uh, and fears and doubts because we understand that's a real part of the human experience. Um, but if we leave that to just humans, then we've abandoned uh, the grace of God. But if we bring that before God and allow him to answer us uh, with his words, uh, then I believe that true healing uh, can happen to our hearts. And so we welcome all, uh, no matter where you're at, as we walk through this journey together. So a uh, quick announcement, baptism reminder, we're going to do baptism soon. We are uh, probably just a few days away from setting a date. Uh, it'll be in the next month or so. We'll go out to the beach and we're actually going to baptize people this time. So um, uh, last time we did really bad at the planning part. So all we did was party at the beach. So we're going to party at the beach and dunk people this time. I promise. It's going to be great. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to celebrate following Jesus publicly, you can join us in baptism. That's what baptism is. Uh, if you have been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, then cool. Don't join us for the... Well, come and watch others be baptized. But if you are a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, we would strongly encourage you to consider that. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about that. It's a no-pressure thing. Um, but it is a great opportunity amongst the community of God's people to celebrate God's salvation because that's what baptism is all about. So uh, make sure you talk with myself or Jason. He was the awesome drummer this morning. Um, all right. So when I was a kid, uh, I didn't watch, but I knew a lot of people that talked about, for some strange reason, soap operas on television. I don't know if this is just my experience or what. Maybe it's, I was a kid in the 80s and soap operas are like rising to prominence. I'm not sure what was the deal, but I, I had interesting and strange and apparently frequent conversations about soap operas in my life. And as a boy, number one, I thought that soap operas were stupid because they were all about sappy romantic stuff, which at first I didn't want anything to do with. But then later I realized, hey, if I want to woo a woman and trick her into spending the rest of her life with me, maybe I should learn about some of the stuff that's going on in these soap operas. I also thought that soap operas was kind of TV trickery. Right? I thought that they were kind of messing with the mind and preying on the boring part of summer break. Right, That middle of the day, it's too hot to go outside. Yes, even in Minnesota, you say it's too hot to go outside in the middle of the day. And so you put the TV right there in the middle of the boring part of the day where it's too hot to go outside so that you can trick everybody into watching a lot of stuff and get good revenue from your commercials. But what I eventually realized is that soap operas were simply a genre of television filmed with certain soft lens filters, cheesy music, and overly dramatic storylines with plot twists and turns that kept the watchers coming back again and again as the world turned all the days of our lives. <sighs> what soap operas did... Why do they call them soap operas? <laughs> Who... Anyway... What they did back during my childhood is really what all good television seeks to do even now. Namely, to pull you into a story in episodic dimensions and seasons that carry a narrative flow and make you want to come back for more and more and more and more and more. Soap operas nailed that first and everybody else followed recipe, right? Fast forward to today and video streaming and Netflix... Right? And what do we have? We have these over-busy lives where sometimes we can hide away on a weekend and binge-watch seasons that lead us to miss parties, skip church, forget to meal prep for the week, and altogether escape from the outside world for a season or two during our favorite series. The whole point that this happens is because we love story. We love character. We love plot. Right? We love drama. 
because it pulls us in and it makes us wanting to know what's next. What's next? It's just obsessive. Well, what's crazy is that in a strange way, the New Testament does this with the church in Ephesus. It pulls us into a storyline, right? So we just finished a series, 13 weeks in the book of Ephesians, walking through chapter by chapter uh, Paul's letter to that church. We introduced that church during the first week of that series where we were out at Church in the Park, uh, and we talked in the book of Acts about some of the things that happened to start the church at Ephesus. And also, we have now what Nathan just read, the beginnings of what we're going to go through for the next seven weeks, another letter to the church in Ephesus, right? The letter we just finished going over was a letter from Paul, who was one of the guys that helped get the church started, so we had that letter that we read. Now we have a letter from not an apostle, but the head leader of the Ephesian church, Jesus Christ himself, the senior pastor would have you, right? He then, through John, in the book of Revelation, pens a letter to that very same church. This letter postdates the previous letter by about 30 years-ish, Right? So this letter is written uh, almost at the end of the century. The church has been planted and established for a couple decades now. And Jesus, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, comes to the church with some observations about their health, the culture of the church, what they're doing, who they are, and he brings correction and rebuke and encouragement to them, right? So in order to get into this letter, we first have to do a gigantic summary of the book of Revelation. So let's start that by reading Revelation 2, 1 to 7 again, then we're going to beg Jesus desperately to help us by his spirit, and then we will dig in. So here it is, Revelation 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have, uh, this you have. Uh, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray, guys. Thank you, Father for your amazing grace to us, uh, that which we've already sung about, that has come to us due to your great kindness, your love and compassion for those you've created is stunning and beautiful, and it's transformative when we behold it. We understand from the pages of Scripture that it is your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And when I read this passage, 
there's a bit of trembling that happens deep in my soul. But I thank you that, God, you do not hold this call to repentance over our heads through fierce embattlement, but rather you bring it to us in service, in sacrifice, in humility. And so, God, I know today we ask for a supernatural thing. Number one, we ask for some understanding about the book of Revelation, which in our day and culture is far from normal. And so we need help with that. But greater than that, we need help with our own hearts. Because we certainly know evil's out there somewhere, but more so we are called in Scripture to pay attention to the evil that's in here, that's in me, that's in us, that's in our church, and it needs correcting. And so we thank you that the prophetic voice is available to us to bring us warning, um, to tell us the oracles of God that our hearts might be uh, kind of cut to the quick, so to say. That your word, which is like a double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of he who sits on the throne, that word is a word that does bring um, confrontation, but it does so in order to bring comfort. And we are desperately in need of that comfort this hour. So we throw ourselves upon your mercy. I throw myself upon your mercy. Dear Holy Spirit, please come. Do what is impossible. Help humans understand God. We need you. In Christ's name, amen. So if you've never watched a video by the group called The Bible Project on YouTube. I want you to write down right now The Bible Project on your paper and Google those dudes and gals. Uh, they're on YouTube and they have myriad of amazingly helpful videos on reading the Bible. One of those videos is in two parts. It's in the Read Scripture series that they did. Uh, the Read Scripture series is a great thing to go to uh, when you're reading through books of the Bible. Okay, so like right now I'm reading through like the kingdom epoch in the Old Testament. So like from Ruth and Judges to the rise of Saul and the fall of Saul and the rise of David and then the kings that followed him on the throne, right? Like I'm reading through that whole thing. And in the midst of reading that, I'm watching these videos before I get into each book. And they're tremendous videos that summarize the books and help to proclaim the central message of the books of the Bible in light of the whole story of the Bible so that greater understanding can come to you as you read. So the video on Revelation is in two parts. I think each video is like 11 or 12 minutes long. So you're going to have to skip that 28 minute episode on Netflix this afternoon and go to YouTube instead and watch two videos from the Bible Project on Revelation. It's tremendous. This is one of the reasons I'm super amped right now is because these videos are awesome. So I have to tell us about what Revelation's all about. In order to do so, I'm basically going to rip off the introduction to video number one from that content. 
Okay, so uh, apologies, Bible Project guys, and thanks. Uh, but this is basically all right now about to come from those guys. So John, we find out in Revelation, which again is not Revelations, it's Revelation. Um, in the book of Revelation, the beginning, we find out that the guy writing this stuff is named John. There are some debates about who this is, more than likely, and I'm convinced that it's John the, uh, the disciple, uh, the one whom Jesus loved, who also wrote uh, the Gospel of John and the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I think that's who this is. He's really old, he's exiled to the island Patmos, and he's writing this letter, right? And so at the, book, or at the beginning of the book of Revelation, John makes it really clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book it is that he's written. Right? Because he calls it, first of all, a revelation or an apocalypse. Okay, the Greek word here is apocalypsis. It refers to a type of literature that's very familiar to the people that are reading this letter from John. Right? The reason is, is because the Hebrew scriptures have other apocalyptic literature in them, uh, and so do some of their famous Jewish, Jewish texts. So, Things that are written in this genre, they recount a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and on current events. So, the whole reason for these apocalypse writings was that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. That's why these books were written. That's why John wrote this book. The word apocalypse means unveiling or uncovering. The whole point of apocalyptic literature is to kind of pull back the veil on spiritual truth, okay, and show us what's behind all of this stuff that's going on. John also says that this apocalyptic writing is a prophecy, which means that it's a word from God spoken through a, a prophet to God's people. That's what prophecy is, right? It's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people. Okay? Usually, prophecy is given to warn or to comfort God's people in times of crisis. Okay? And by calling this book prophecy, John is saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. Okay? One of the things that happens in the book of Revelation is that arrows are pointing backward to other prophetic writings in the Old Testament and pointing forward, therefore, to God's completion of everything in history. Okay? So this book reaches back into the Old Testament to tell what's both happening now and what's going to happen. Right? Um, so the book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. So seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle, which originated in creation and existed throughout the Old Testament. And so John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. And the way that he opens the book with the seven letters to these churches is John's way of giving us a clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Okay, the way the book begins sets the tone for how the whole book of Revelation should be read. Okay, does that make sense? This isn't um, like part one and then it like shifts and transitions and then becomes a totally different thing. The whole book is an entire stream of thought and it needs to continue from the idea that John is writing a letter to these specific existing churches, right? So these um, apocalyptic writings uh, give their communication through symbolic imagery 
and numbers. Okay, so a lot of this writing is with interesting numbers and crazy word pictures, right? That's the whole point of apocalyptic writing is to reveal spiritual truth through these different things. But it's important to understand and remember that John is not giving a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Thus the difficulty in our day and age because many biblical interpreters have ruined revelation for us by telling us it's how we figure out when the end of the world is coming. That's absolutely false and completely ridiculous. And with all due respect to the guys who wrote it, those end times novels were bonk, right? They, they absolutely ruined the message of revelation. This isn't about the prediction of all the specific events that are going to lead to the final end of all things. Revelation is so much more beautiful than that. Because John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he's trying to help his readers discover what those symbols mean and understand what he's alluding to. Okay? This letter or the fact that Revelation, the book, is actually a letter, means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches, right? So we need to understand John knew these people. Actually, uh, uh, historians believe that John lived in and hung out with and did some ministry in Ephesus, and that he got the boot to Patmos from Rome, right? Because he wouldn't shut up about the gospel and the risen Christ who was Lord even over Caesar, right? So Rome eventually booted him to Patmos, and that's where he has this vision. Later, his body was recovered and apparently is buried in Ephesus, okay? So John has a real uh, personal and powerful connection to the people of Ephesus and to many of the people in these other churches. So Revelation is an actual letter from a real human given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to groups of people that actually existed and sat together to understand God's word and then therefore John's letters, right? So this is real stuff to real people that was really applicable to them in their real time, okay? We need to understand that about the book of Revelation because the book does have a lot to say to Christians in later generations like us, but its meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. That's why digging into who is Ephesus, who's in Ephesus, who's in Smyrna, who's in Pergamum, who's in Philadelphia, who's in these churches, what's going on in those cities and those places, and what is Jesus saying to them is of utmost importance to understanding all of the book of Revelation. Right? So we're not going to walk through the whole book right now, but we're going to walk through these first seven letters and they're going to give us a really good lens for seeing the whole rest of the book of Revelation. And you're going to keep watching those YouTube videos over and over again and it's going to be awesome. Right? So that's why we're going to dig into this. And also we're able to continue the story of the church we've grown familiar with, the church in Ephesus, over the last 13 weeks and see where they went a couple decades later. Especially today, we're going to see what Jesus has to say to that church. And so John, in the beginning of Revelation, was exiled in the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Christ exalted as the king of the world. Right? In verse 11 of chapter 1, John is told this, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. John then turns around, right, to see who's speaking to him. You got to remember this is all a vision. And at that point, we read this, Revelation 1:13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, glorious. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like the burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Whoa, right? As soon as John sees this, he falls over, right? Like those goats when they get scared, and just like John, like see there, just boom, out, crazy, powerful, glorious, like nothing he has ever seen in his entire life. But in the vision, the one like the Son of Man reaches down and puts his hand on John's shoulder to calm him down. It says something very familiar in verse 17, fear not. Remember Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to disciples? They're spooked almost every time he shows up. And what does he always respond to them and their fear with? Fear not. Right? These are very familiar words to John. He's, he's heard them before, so he calms down. Right? Maybe he gets back up maybe to his knees. I'm not sure. But the, the words continue in verse 7. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. Right? So John finally realizes what I'm seeing is Jesus. He told me fear not before and he was still just a man in flesh. He's telling me fear not now and I'm seeing him in all of his glory. He's realizing this is Jesus. He says, I'm the living and, uh, and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John understands that the seven golden lampstands is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah, right? Because there was lampstands talked about back in Zechariah's writing. And so what follows then in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, is Jesus addressing the specific problems that face each one of these churches, okay? Some of these churches were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised, like their people were still eating uh, ritual meals of other religions, and they were sleeping around in, in pagan temples. They were morally compromised, Yet some of the churches were actually still faithful to Jesus. And in their faithfulness, they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns these churches that things are going to get worse, right? He tells them that there's a tribulation upon the churches and that that tribulation will force them to choose between compromise and faithfulness, okay? That's one of the messages of the book of Revelation is that the pressure's on, folks, and you have a choice to make. Either let Jesus be king and reign in your hearts or bow down to the pressures of this world and other kings that would lift themselves up. Because in John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman emperor Nero had already happened, and they were currently seeing around them or maybe even experiencing the persecution by Emperor Domitian. And so the temptation for them was real. The temptation to deny Jesus, 
either to avoid persecution or simply to join in the spirit of the Roman age. Because after all, as in Rome, right? And so Jesus calls these churches to faithfulness. He calls them to overcome or literally to, to conquer. And he says to each of them and, and to them as a whole that there is a promised reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. And each of, that, each of these rewards is actually drawn directly from uh, one of the book's final visions about when heaven and earth finally come together. And so these letters, as they open the book of Revelation, they set up one of the main plot tensions that will drive the story in all of the book of Revelation. There are these questions that say, can the church make it? Will the church endure? Will it stay faithful? Will God's purposes be thwarted by enemies of him and of the church? Or will his purposes prevail? Will his kingdom really come? on earth as it is in heaven, as he promised? Will his final uh, victory actually be the victory of the church? That's what the book of Revelation unfolds through all the different uh, bowls and scrolls and narratives that go on. And so we begin here with the book uh, or with the letter to the church in Ephesus. And when we look at this letter to the church in Ephesus, we realize that there is a knowledge and a rulership uh, held in the hands of God that assures them that he really is in charge, that he really does care, that he really does see, and that it really does matter who they are and what they do in response to what he's already told them. So our passage, starting in verse 2, Jesus says this, I know your works. He says, I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and that you have not grown weary. And in verse 6, he also says, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans or however you pronounce that, which I also hate. And so Jesus has encouragements for this church in Ephesus, right? He's saying, listen, you guys, I know that you're working hard. I know that you're toiling, and I know that you're enduring with patience, right? What is he talking about toiling and endurance? Well, he's talking about what he talked about when he stood at the, the Sermon on the Mount and, and proclaimed to the people uh, what it was like to follow after him. What was it? It was a narrow road up a steep, steep hill. He said, it's not a wide, easy path to follow after me. It's a treacherous journey. He says, small is the gate that leads to life and follows after me. And wide is that which opens itself to destruction, right? He's saying, it's going to be hard way back on the Sermon on the Mount. And now he's saying to the people in Ephesus, it has been hard and you're still in it, right? You're still enduring. That is a wonderful attribute of the church in Ephesus, a great thing to be encouraged. What else does he encourage them with? He says, you cannot bear with evil people who speak lies instead of the truth about God. Okay? John, or Jesus, directly ties evil to false apostles. Okay? That's what he's saying. You do not endure evil people, dot, 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 false apostles. That's the same thing to Jesus. That is evil, 
to Jesus. People who speak lies as though they are truth, particularly lies about God, right? So he's telling Ephesus, keep it up, y'all, right? The theology, this gospel beauty that your minds have, have by the grace of God, grabbed a hold of, you're, you're maintaining its purity. Because when anybody comes from outside and tells you something other than the beauty of the gospel of the sacrificed king of the universe for you, you reject it. You push that doctrine away. You call those men what they are, liar! And you don't allow them to speak lies in your midst. Jolly-o, <laughs> Ephesians, keep it up. That is amazing work. And it's hard work because lies are everywhere. And when men are led away by their own desires, they're prone to speak and teach and raise up those things that would lead people astray. Why? Because we love power and comfort and convenience more than Jesus. And so he's saying, good job, church in Ephesus. You've fought the good fight. He tells them also that they have not grown weary. They've endured patiently. They've bear, uh, bearing up for his name's sake, right? In the trials that have come against them in that historical moment it was the trials of being roman citizens and christians that was hard to do because being a roman citizen demanded certain allegiances and being a christian demanded that you abandon those allegiances right just like america okay just like it this culture demands you have allegiances that are foreign to christ do not grow weary at pushing back against the grain. Dear church at Ephesus, you've resisted. Good job, guys. That is not an easy tide to stand against. That is not a weak current to buck because the lies of Rome are powerful. And you guys have stood the test. You've not grown weary. And finally, he says, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. And this is a group that we don't know a lot about. But in, I think it's the next passage or the one after, it's tied to the false prophet uh, uh, Balaam in the Old Testament, which ties it to uh, idol worship and sexual immorality. And so most New Testament scholars think that the Nicolaitans were people that taught that um, you really didn't have to abandon uh, the, the moralities of the day in order to follow Jesus faithfully, okay? These people taught, you know, like, hey, you can know God and, and be cool with, you know, sex with lots of people, for instance, because that was totally a Roman thing, right? Like, you can follow God and be totally fine by being enamored by the power of Caesar and basically worshiping him as Jesus instead of Jesus as Jesus. So, like, the, they, they were saying, or Jesus is saying here, you've, you've pushed against this uh, propensity to just fall in line with the things of the culture, right? So good job, church. You're staying faithful to Jesus with your bodies, with your money, with your work ethic, with your marriages, rather than just simply following the tide of the times, right? So there's a lot of good stuff here happening. And if you look at Acts chapter 20, one of the episodes in the life of the church in Ephesus, and I, I don't have time to read all of this, but I encourage you to look at it. Uh, I believe we looked at it the first week of last, um, 
of last series. Paul, before he sails away from the area, he calls the elders of the Ephesian church to him at the port. And he has a a rah-rah-rah moment with them. And in this moment with them, he encourages them to be faithful to the gospel. And as he encourages them to this faithfulness, he warns them that there will be people who rise up against their or rise in their midst and begin to teach various doctrines and bad theologies. Okay? Bad things about God, lies as though they were truth, incorrect ideas about morality, okay? Um, about swimming against culture or just caving in. Like he says, hey, <laughs> men are jacked, yo, especially those that stand up and teach stuff. So make sure that anything you hear taught falls in line with the gospel that's been once delivered for all time. And work hard at this. Labor together as brothers to maintain unity in the gospel and push out anybody who comes in and tries to teach another gospel, right? So that's what he warns the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, right? So what's neat is that they've done it. They've established a church that's existed for decades now that has prioritized the purity of the gospel. That's a beautiful thing. They've listened to Paul's encouragement and they've labored hard. They're being encouraged by Jesus in this letter that they've done a good job, right? So there's a lot to celebrate in this letter. But what's crazy is that with all of these good things going on for them, the church is still in danger of losing its place as one of Jesus' faithful churches. Whoa! That's, that's mind-boggling, okay? So we just talked about four colossal celebrations that the church should be throwing in Ephesus. Where Jesus is like, I know it, and you're doing it, and it's hard, and it's good and right. You love what I love. You hate what I hate. You're enduring the temptations. You're fighting the good fight. And then he says, but you're in danger of not even being a church. So what, what follows has got to be a, an extremely high priority to Christ's view of a faithful church if neglecting to do it is going to make them stop being a church. Okay? What Jesus is saying here is that what I'm about to tell you that you don't have is the thing that all of that stuff before is supposed to create. And because you don't have that thing that's supposed to be created by all the right doctrine stuff, you're actually almost not a real church. You're almost just a social club. You almost don't have my name stamped on your life. You're this close to not even resembling your Lord. Tell me, what are we missing? Right, we already read it. It's spoiled. Here it is, Revelation 2, 4. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That's the one thing. Love. 
Now, we've got to use the Bible to describe love, okay? Because if you take all the messages you heard in the last six days about love and you insert that right now, you're going to miss it all because this world doesn't know nothing about love. Love you, but it doesn't, okay? This love knows about romance. This world knows about infatuation. This knows, world knows about obsession. This world knows about physical pleasure a little bit. Uh, this world knows those things. It doesn't know biblical Christ love. And so, well, we got to answer this question first. What is John saying here? Is he saying you've abandoned the love for Jesus or you've abandoned love for his people? Okay, that's like the age-old debate here. What is he talking about? Is he saying you've got all this good theology but you've stopped loving Jesus? Or is he saying you've got all this good theology but you've stopped loving people? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Right? Why? Because you can't love Jesus without loving his people. It is literally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, economically, totally impossible to love Jesus without loving Jesus' people. Okay? Do you love this city? I love this city. Do you love the people in this city? Yes. If you say no to the first one, then you don't love the city. You love the idea of the city. You don't actually love the city, right? Who do you know? Who do you love? Who do you hang out with? Who do you pray for? Who do you sacrifice for? Who do you love? Do you love the city? By loving his people. Yes. Do you love your family? Generally, yes. Specifically, the people? Yes. That's how you love your family, right? There is no way to love Jesus without loving his people. Why? Because the church is Jesus' body, right? You cannot love someone by loving only its head, right? You cannot love someone by only loving its head. You must love the arms, the legs, and the feet, and the toes, and the entrails, and the skin, and the muscles, and the sinews, and the bones. You got to love it all. Otherwise, you don't really love it, right? When my wife is concerned about my health, she doesn't just ask me about my eyes, and my ears, and my nose, and my teeth, and my headaches, right? She asks me about my aching back. <laughs> she asks me about my tired feet. She asks me about my irritated skin and my sunburns. And she asks me, I know it's gross, but about my stomach, right? I mean, she cares about my total health. She loves all of the parts of all of me. So if you are to love Jesus, then you are, or you must be loving his people. So the question here, what is love that we lost, that the, Ephesus, that the church in Ephesus lost, it is what the Bible calls brotherly love. And that's specifically talking about love between its members, the church amongst itself. He's saying you've lost love. You've lost love, and it's evident in the way you live. So what is love? Let's, let's let the Bible define love. 1 Corinthians 13 Nearly every wedding you've ever been to, you've heard this letter or this part of First Corinthians read about. Get wedding out of your head right now. Remove it. Okay, I'm not saying it's bad to do that. It's fine, but yeah, wrong connection. Okay, this letter is about God's love and how it's manifested through people to one another. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have away, if I deliver up my body to be burned and I have not love, I gain nothing. If you, dear Ephesian church, have doctrinal purity but have not love, you have nothing. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Stop thinking of marriage right now. Stop it. This is not about marriage right now. Look next to you. Look around. Look at me. This is about us. Love. This is love. Not that the world gives us, but that Jesus gives us. Love is patient and kind. This is about us. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. The deep theological meaning behind the word all is all. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things and endures all things. Verse 8, love never ends. This is about the church. This is about Jesus and being reflected in his body. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, a partial will pass away. This is exactly why Jesus can say to the church, you've got all the doctrine, but you don't have love, so I'm about to remove the lampstand. Love is greater. Biblical love is greater. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What's he saying? He's saying love will endure forever. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. That passage is not about marriage. That passage is to us. If the church of Ephesus would have read that passage, they would have known what Jesus was talking about here. They had lost that. The mark of a real church with a bright burning lampstand in the presence of Jesus is doctrinal purity? Yes. Love. Right? Love. First John 4. 7 through 12, beloved, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's why this is so important. If you've got all doctrinal purity and not love, you don't even know God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
in John 15, in, Je in Jesus' famous um, exposition about the vine, he talks about how we will be known as his disciples by what? By the love we have for one another. He says, this is my commandment in verse 12 of John 15, that you love one another, right? That you love one another. And greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. So we see biblical love is active. Biblical love is sacrificial. Biblical love is enduring and faithful. Biblical love is forgiving and forgetful of sin. And that's the kind of love that should mark a true church of Jesus Christ. So this church in Ephesus needed to understand that learning biblical truth, that understanding the gospel, it obligated them to be like Jesus in service of others. Not to somehow hold themselves puffed up and pridefully over others. If the conclusion of good doctrine and right theology and reading the Bible and applying it to our lives is thinking that we are better than somebody so that we can't actually love them, then we've come to the wrong conclusions. Okay? The ultimate aim, the final product developed by a real biblical life of discipleship is a woman or a man formed into the image of Jesus who loved the world so much that he gave his life for us. That's why we learn the Bible. So that we can be like Jesus. And if we don't love people to the cost of our own selves, then we haven't loved like Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? He left perfection at the right hand of the Father, was born into this present darkness as a son of man, flesh and bones. He bore the shame and the scorn and the ridicule and the abandonment of not only being a human, but being the most misunderstood human to have ever walked the planet. And then what did he do to those people that misunderstood him? He let them kill him as part of God's plan to redeem us all. Jesus is the perfect picture of love. And if we do not look like Jesus, all of our accurate theologizing is like that really annoying, out of place, not in the midst of the right spot of music, clanging cymbal. Right? It's useless. It's no good. So what does Jesus say then? In verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus calls them to remember and to repent. Remember when you loved people. 
he says to the Ephesians. Right? Like, I think it's in Acts 18, 19, where the Ephesian church was beginning. There was almost mass hysteria in the city because of the great news of the gospel. It was making a whole group of people brand new. And in that newness, they were set aflame with love for Jesus, expressed by love for one another. They were serving each other. A bunch of them were witches and like soothsayers. And they took their books of witchcraft and idolatry and they burned them in a big fire. Because why? Because the witchcraft and idolatry led them to what? Power mongering. Building a life for themselves that was great. Gaining some sort of stance and audience. And they burned it and took up a Bible instead. Well, letters instead. Because they wanted to serve like Jesus served. He says, remember that. Remember where you were. And then he says, repent. And John Stott simply says, repentance is a change of mind leading to a change of direction. He just simply says, remember that and change. Right? He says, start to do the stuff that you did before out of love for others or else you're not a church anymore. Right? Profound. Strong and intense. Look, some of us are heading in the wrong direction. We're walking away from one another. Jesus wants us to remember and repent. This letter wasn't to us, but it's for us. We're what, five-year-old church-ish, three-year-olds, depends where you track that. Some of us don't love each other. Some of us haven't had much time to get to know anyone to love them, so that's okay. Some of us have had a lot of time to get to know one another. And we're going currently in the wrong direction. Go back. Go back to arguing about doctrine. No. Go back to love. Go back to exemplifying Jesus, the one you learned about in your doctrine, by serving others. By putting their needs before your own. By being quick to forget their sin. And fast to remember their faithfulness. We've got to go back. I know it's hard, right? It's not perfect. Not even close to perfect. People are messy. This warning isn't here because it's easy. This warning's here because it's hard and it's been neglected. <laughs> if it were easy, Jesus wouldn't bring the gracious correction. If it was easy, we'd do it all the time and not need the reminder, but it's human nature to look to self before others to remember what you did wrong before I remember what you've done right. Or even greater, before I remember your Savior <laughs> who saved you even when you're wrong. People are tough. 
church is hard, especially church planting. Setting up, tearing down, not a bunch of cool, flashy anything, right? It's hard. Especially in freaking St. Pete. What's the deal with this city, yo? It's hard. It's difficult. Your leaders are failures. So many levels. The culture surrounding you is telling you lies like crazy about what it means to belong to a church, about what the truth of God even is. You're being told it should be comfortable and easy and not cost you a thing. It's lies. (laughs) Right? Like, it's hard. It's hard, but it's right, and it's good, and the word of our risen Lord is coming to us today. He's saying, go back. So if you've lost love, go back. How do I go back, Pastor? You just do stuff. I know we hate, like, we're like grace people, right? We're gospel grace people, and we're like, don't tell me what to do. Dang it, do it. Do it. Go have a freaking meal. I love you. Okay? Go ask them what they need, and then go buy it. Go do it. Go to your bedroom and hit your knees and pray. Repent. I know you don't got those good feely feelies anymore. Or maybe you haven't developed them yet. I don't care, man. That's what the world tells you love is. Do you think it felt good to go to Calvary? Repent. Go back. I have been slaughtered by God's conviction this week. the lack of love in my life for you. Let Jesus do that to you. Not to hold you down under some stream of condemnation, but to lift you to a place where you depend on a power that is not your own. And you move into the realm of looking to Jesus and begging him for help and seeing his supernatural power lift you up to be loved like him. Or else, Jesus says, I'm going to pull the lamp out. Let's love our doctrine, guys. Amen and amen. Let's preach it. Let's sing it. Let's write it. Let's read it. Let's celebrate it. Let's talk about it. And let's freaking love the crap out of each other. Then the world will know who Jesus is. That's how it works. That's how the book of Revelation works. It's the perseverance of a pressured people who are not bowing to an empire or to false prophets or to the allure of immorality, but are remaining faithful. And as they do, Jesus is defeating evil through them as they follow him. That's what happens in the book of Revelation. Fast forward to the end, we already know. Victory is ours because of the risen Lord. He will hold on to us as we hold on to him. He will enable us to bear up under all of this pressure and all of this temptation. He will hold us in his faithfulness as we are faithful. He will purify his bride and one day he's going to throw up on that big screen. 
the real glory of God for all the world to see. And what they're going to be looking at is a victorious church, saved once and for all by its returning king. That's the message of Revelation, and it starts with the local church, and it continues with the local church. This church is a huge deal. But if we have not love, the sovereign king of the universe will pull the rug out. What a gracious warning. Let's pray. Jesus, we are desperate. There is no way in our own strength that we can be 1 Corinthians 13 to one another. So we first thank you that you are the total embodiment of love. And that because of your love, you have forgiven us for our lack of love. And yet, in love, you call us to do love amongst one another. To simply begin to do the deeds of love here. So God, as we begin, we're going to fail, we're going to stumble, it's going to be weird, it's going to be awkward. We're going to make promises that we can't keep, we're going to forget stuff that we should have remembered. It's just not going to go great, but we know that you've called us to go back and to do it again. So God, whether we're enduring and have for years in this place, in this church, or whether we just showed up last week, would you push us toward love to get a start? Like that giant boulder at the top of the hill, help us get a start. And then like gravity and the power of your Holy Spirit, take over and make that thing work. Let love work here amongst us to make us look like Jesus and smell like Jesus and appear like Jesus to this Christless world that surrounds us. To the glory of God so that his purposes might be fulfilled in St. Pete and beyond. We love you, Jesus. Help us. We need you in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to take communion in the next few moments, and we'll also be singing and repenting and rejoicing. You are under the gracious rule of a kind king who laid his life down so that he might take up a position like no one else has ever had in order to deliver you truth like he just did today. It's gracious truth. It's loving truth. It's for his glory and your good. Amen. We need it. Let's celebrate that we're under grace. Let's make uh, uh, reconciliation where is needed. And let's look to Jesus to empower us to love. Amen.